We're going to open with a word of prayer this morning, and uh, then we'll get started again in, in the scriptures. Father, once again, we're thankful for this time of year. We're thankful for the fact that it does help us to remember, or should help us to remember, that Jesus Christ took flesh. That God became man and took flesh upon himself, and he went through this life, Father, and, and suffered many of the same indignations and problems we did, and yet, unlike any human before him or since him, he did not sin. He never, he never did anything that he had to confess or make a sacrifice for under the law. And, Father, that perfect sinless life <coughs> was, was, the, was the life of one who was rejected when he offered himself to be king. Father, we're so thankful today that because of his life, because of what he accomplished, because of how you took uh, out of his rejection and, and crucifixion by his own people, you gave us salvation. And it's a remarkable part of your plan. Today, Father, as we look into the Word of God again, may the Spirit of God be our teacher, and may we remember the time of year and what it really is all about. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. We're not going to uh, follow up with a, with a Christmas-type message. Um, it just isn't the same the day after Christmas. Something about it is different. Unless we have a message about 50% off all, everything we did <laughs> today. But instead, we're going back, we're doing a series of what uh, we call problems we don't have when we take Scripture literally. Now, uh, the positions we're setting forth in, in, in these things are positions that are not held by the majority of Christendom, because the majority of Christendom doesn't take the Bible literally. And it's a great puzzle to me. Now, I should say one thing, too. I, I trust that as I've done these messages and I continue to do them, for the foreseeable future, this our plan is to go through some of the many things that we, the problems we don't have. I, I trust that I never come across as being negative because one thing I am not attacking anybody, but I do get upset at times when people teach the wrong thing. I get upset at wrong doctrine because wrong doctrine equates to wrong living. If we don't teach how to live by grace, if we teach some form of living by the law, I can guarantee you what it says in the book of Hebrews, the law brought nothing to maturity. It brings nothing to maturity. You cannot mature spiritually. So if we get upset at times, or sound like we're upset, I don't usually get upset, I don't think, but if it comes across as negative, please realize it's the doctrine that is wrong, that can hurt the people of God. That's what concerns me, and I get angry with the doctrine, not with the people. There's so many of them, and some of them, some of them actually can be your friends to a point. And I've even had fellowship with people that didn't agree with me on everything. We fellowship to a certain point. And that was as far as we could go. And that's sad in a way, but on the other hand, it's the only way we can fellowship sometimes with other people. So, we've come to, uh, we're coming today to one of the most misunderstood and misused chapters in the Word of God. Now, without doubt, <laughs> the most misused book of the New Testament is the, is the Gospel of Matthew. It's a, runaway, it's a runaway surety. And you can see that because the misuse of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, has done more to damage the, the growth of Christians, more damage to the church than any other single area you can find any place. It is the most destructive thing because it takes people from grace, it forces them under law, it overlooks everything that you see taught, everything that is taught in the epistles of Paul. It's all contradictory. Uh, make sure they get uh, copies. Morning, brother. And so, if we misuse Matthew, and we misuse Matthew chapters five through seven, we will see such harm done to the church and such a complete derailing of the Christian life. 
Well, it does something terrible because when you get to the Gospel of Matthew, frequently the traditional view is the kingdom of the heavens is a reference not to the millennial kingdom that's coming, but to some kind of a kingdom in heaven today after you die. You know, they look at it that way. Now, I have a quote in here. Instead of the millennial kingdom, this is one commentator, and I'm not picking on him, I'm just showing you what these people believe. The expression, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, would be best translated, the reign of, of God draws near. In, the sense, in this sense, it is meant that the time when Christ should reign or set up his kingdom or begin his dominion on earth under the Christian economy was about to commence. Do you see what that's done? Under the Christian economy, they have completely took, taken away, they've obliterated, they've erased the distinction between Israel and the church. And that one statement right there, I think, if you were going to just summarize how the church has failed, this would be the simplest way to do it. That They have taken away the difference between Israel and the church. The minute you've done that, you have taken away everything in the Christian life. Because if you're going to go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you are not going to be able to do the things that Paul talks about in his epistles. They're not going to make sense. You can't do the same. You can't do two different things at the same time. You can try to do that, but if you do that, you'd have to be a lawyer or a politician. I had to put that one in. <clears throat> I, lawyers and politicians have always been the butt of good jokes. I mean, you, you can't go wrong insulting them. So, now, the problem... Huh? What's the big part, brother? Oh. And, and the problem with this non-literal interpretation in the, in the Gospel of Matthew continues into the 24th chapter. And here is another place. If I was going to say the second biggest error that comes from misusing the, the Gospel of Matthew is in Matthew 24 and 25. The worst of all is Matthew 5 through 7. If you take that for the church, you'll destroy the Christian life because you'll have people living by things under the law. Now, if you come to Matthew 24 and use it like some people do, you will not understand the future at all. You will not understand what God has for his kingdom in the future. You'll not understand the things that will set up the arrangement of the kingdom, the things that will precede it. You won't understand the great tribulation. Not like you should. And so, you'll also, the worst part of it is, you'll notice what I said in here, the result is that signs that the rapture is near are taken from the context, taken right out of text. Oh boy, if you've ever gone through, and you, you might want to do this sometime, but grit your teeth because it's not very pleasant when you read how people tear Scripture to pieces. But if you go online and put signs of the rapture coming near, signs of impending rapture, and you will find inevitably in every one of them at least some mention, if not the heaviest mention, will be things taken right out of Matthew 24 and applied to us. Say These are things that say the rapture approaches. Now, if we understand it literally, we will not fall into the trap of thinking there are all kinds of signs to follow the rapture. Because some of the things they do are just plain silliness. So, here's a quote I have in here about the signs preceding the rapture. You'll notice right in our notes, in the bold, uh, bold italicized font, Worldwide moral conditions are now the same as they were in the days of Noah, as Jesus said they would be in Matthew 24, 37. Stop right there. How do we know what the moral conditions were in Sodom and Gomorrah exactly? And how can we guarantee... What measurement, how do we, how do we, Pastor, how do we measure those? Is, you know, can we, do, do you see what I'm saying? That this is just, you're not taking the Bible literally. You have to make things up, so you have to, you have to impose the thoughts. Yeah, it's the same as it was then. We'll say marrying and giving in marriage. Well, is there something wrong with marrying and giving in marriage? Eating and drinking? 
Most of us ate and drank yesterday, didn't we? I'm not talking about alcohol. I'm talking about eating and drinking in general. So, you know, so it goes on to say, the, the same as they were in, in, in Matthew 24, 7, 37. Now, also a significant number of earthquakes of all sizes and in many places have little to no historical, in places that have little to no historical uh, record of, uh, let me read that again, and in many places that have had little to no history of seismic activity, Oklahoma, North Texas, U.S. Midwest, New England, Mid-Atlantic States, parts of Europe, Middle East, etc., in fulfillment of Matthew 13, 8 and, and Matthew 24, 7. Now, I beg your pardon, but do you know that there have been earthquakes almost every continent at some point almost every year? I was watching a documentary, and it was on a city, I, I can't remember, do you remember what city it was, Cheryl? We were watching a documentary, it was about some big earthquake. And that particular part of the country said that they have earthquakes almost every day. They have them so often, they don't even notice them. And all of a sudden, they had a really big one that just, caught, they weren't expecting a big one. They just, oh, sure, an earthquake, but not like this one. So it just, it was in Nicaragua. This was in, uh, in, in this Nicaragua, in the capital of Nicaragua. And they have earthquakes all the time. Now, if that's, if sometimes there's earthquakes or some kind of a sign the rapture's coming, I got a big problem with that. Nicaragua has them all the time. So, so how would that? How would you know? What, what does that mean to say earthquakes are a sign? It's just silliness. You you can't prove anything by it. <coughs> so, <coughs> you can see that there is a problem that comes. So we want to consider, and we may not be able to do it all in one week. We may have to do this today and then come back next month to do a little bit more on this subject. But we're going to get started on it today. And in the process, uh, we're also going to perhaps have a secondary benefit. As we look at this in our starting point, we may also see that uh, we will, if we have a literal interpretation of Scripture, we will not misunderstand or misuse the triumphal entry. Now, the triumphal entry is, is kind of a misnamed thing because the triumphal entry, as we go through this and see, what was the triumph? Was this one who presented himself as king welcomed by the people as king? Well, I don't think so. What was the triumph that was here? You know, you ask people that, and I'm sure most people don't think about it. Why do we call this a triumphal entry? Somebody once said it should be called a dismal entry, and that doesn't sound very good because we're used to hearing triumph and all of a sudden dismal, but, well, let's look at it and see. So, Matthew 24. Now, at the heart of our message, we're getting to what's going on in Matthew 24. But to get to Matthew 24... You have to see the backdrop for it, because Matthew 24 is not in a vacuum, and one of the bigger dangers that we can have is just lifting the whole chapter out and taking it out of context and not looking at the things that lead up to it. Because if you understand what's leading up to it, the stage is going to be perfectly set for this discourse when you see what happens. So, the discourse, this, the discourse in Matthew 24 is going to begin right after the triumphal entry, and you see I have some notations on it. Now, there's a footnote that, you, that, I, that I don't usually read my footnotes, but this one is worth looking at. Footnote number three, it tells you something important, I think. When the order of events varies between gospel accounts, we follow Luke, because Luke, in his scripture, says, it seemed that he, and it says in Luke 1.3, it seemed to me good to me also, having perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you in order, most excellent Theophilus. In order is a word that means it's in, it's in Sequence. It's in chronological sequence. In other words, when the events differ from different Gospels, 
there are going to be cases where someone will pull something out of, out of place and place it somewhere else for emphasis. And I suppose I should show you a reference to that. I want you to go over to Matthew chapter 4 for a moment. And then we're going to go to Luke 4, and you'll see there's a difference. Now, let me ask you a question as you're turning to Matthew 4. Would you suppose, or would you consider it an error in Scripture if someone lists something out of order? If someone has, if the actual order is 1, 2, 3, and someone is writing an article and they go 1, 3, 2, is that an error? It doesn't make any difference, does it? You have all the facts. If you put them out of order, as long as you have the facts... Well, the reason I'm saying that is because people will pick on that. People who don't like the scriptures will say, oh, here's a, here's a contradiction. Here's, here's, here's a discrepancy. So you look at, you look at Matthew chapter 4. We find, beginning at verse 3, this is a Christ in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 3, and the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones be made bread. So number one temptation command these stones be made bread. And by the way, you'll notice this after 40 days and 40 nights. This is, these three temptations were not the only ones that Christ had. Because Luke's going to tell you he was tempted during the 40 days. But as he got to the end, I believe, as you look at this, these were what Satan thought. These were the last three shots he had. These were probably his most likely, his strongest cases, the strongest thing he could come up with. And it makes perfect sense in that light. If a man hasn't eaten in 40 days, you think he'd be hungry? I don't know about you guys, but if I miss a meal, you know, and if I'm a half an hour, 45 minutes late for supper, I think I'm dying of starvation. Well, obviously, I'm not. But just imagine after 40 days. So this would be logical if this man hadn't eaten in 40 days. This would be the strongest thing you could hit him with. The first thing you hit him with is probably going to be the strongest. Then look what he says. The second thing, in verse 5, Then the devil take him, takes him up to the holy city and sets him on a pinnacle of the temple and said, uh, if you're the son of God, cast yourself down, for he will give you his angels charge over thee that, that, uh, <clears throat> concerning you, that in their hands they should bear thee up, lest at any time you dash your foot against the stone. Second one, I'm going to put you on the pinnacle. Throw yourself down. Well, why would that be so important? Well, if he was on the pinnacle of the temple in the daytime, the temple grounds always had people there, lots of people. If all of a sudden this man fell off this pinnacle and came crashing toward the ground, all of a sudden an angels caught him at the ground, wouldn't that get attention? Wouldn't it get him reputation? Wouldn't he have an audience? Wouldn't that prove something? Apparently Satan thought that he could appeal to this one based upon the fact that he wants attention. He, he'll, he'll, he'll jump at the chance to get recognition to build his case for who he is. And then the last one, verse 8, Again, the devil takes him into exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And said unto him, All these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. So now the third temptation, according to Matthew, is the offer of the kingdoms. But now if you go over to Luke, and we're not going to look at the, the Christ replies. That's been done many times, and uh, you can read those. <laughs> I just want to make that one distinction to show you that you do have occasions where the events are recorded in a different order in other Gospels, but Luke claims to be the one who set things in chronological order. So what I'm saying is whenever I see the Gospels and I have question about the order of things, I'm going to follow Luke's order because he says he's chronological. Makes sense, does it not? Now, in, in Luke 4, you'll notice that it said, uh, in verse 2, it says, And being forty days tempted of or from the devil... 
In those days he did eat nothing. That's why we say he wasn't just tempted three times. He was tempted for 40 days from the devil. So Satan used a lot of things, and then he got to the end, and I think he finally decided these were his three best shots to take. So now he has, Luke has the same thing in verse 4. In verse 3, rather, he says, uh, if you're the son of God, command these stones be made bread. So he's got the same thing there. <laughs> now, look at the second temptation. And the devil, verse 5, takes him into a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, wait, wait a second. I thought the second temptation was Christ was taken to the pinnacle of the temple. No, it was actually the offer of all the kingdoms of the world. So apparently Satan considered the most dynamic his final temptation. The first one was the strongest. This last one was probably the most dynamic. Throw yourself down. Satan apparently thought that this one was somebody seeking glory. That's how much he didn't understand human nature. Remember, Satan doesn't know everything. He was dealing with a man, and he thought that this man would react like any other man. And I'll tell you what, if you dangle fame or fortune, fame in front of most people, you know, you look at Facebook, and you see people do things on there for what, what someone humorously called their 15 minutes of, of fame. There was one lady who's, who's claimed for fame, and I, I, can't, I still can't believe it. She showed pictures of herself in a bathtub full of milk and Fruit Loops. And that was how she got her fame. She got, she got known. 15 minutes of fame. She, that's what pe people are willing to do anything to get fame. At least some people are. I don't know about you, but... Uh, I wouldn't get in the top of Fruit Loops. Maybe, maybe just Captain Crunch, I might consider. But people will do almost anything. That's the point. And so apparently Satan thought that he, this shows you what Satan understood about the humanity of Christ. He didn't know everything. Don't, don't give Satan more power than he has. Don't give him greater wisdom than he has. He looked at this and he saw a man and he thought, what I know about mankind is I'll do anything to get fame. They'll get anything to be known. So I'll give him that. And, but why, why then would Matthew... Why would Matthew put the final temptation as though it was the greatest one, the offers of a kingdom? Well, because what was Matthew writing about? The kingdom of the heavens, the millennial kingdom. This is the king. What's the greatest temptation you could give to a king? Territory, kingdoms, land, things to rule over, people to rule over. So Matthew's order shows it's in line with his purpose. Is there a contradiction between the two gospels? No, because Matthew is writing around a theme. Luke is writing around a chronological order. There's no, there's no problem there, but you'd be surprised. And don't be surprised if you ever hear someone say or you read about, oh, there's a contradiction. Look at this order here. It's the same temptations. Does it really make any difference what order they're in? If there were different temptations, then I'd say maybe we have something to think about. But there's not. So we say that, and let's go back to our notes. But I wanted you to see that because it, because it explains... There are some things in the notes that follow where there's variances in things between Luke and, and you have the, the so-called triumphal entry recorded in three of the Gospels and you have a very short, and, and uh, I, I left off on, under point A on the bottom of page one, uh, I left off Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. He also has recording of the triumphal entry. And by the way, uh, if, if you want any extra copies, uh, these, these notes are available online at our website. You can find them. And it's, it's in my file on, under the view documents. And you go to Don Hewitt and you go down through there and you'll find Misunderstanding Matthew 24. And so it's available there if you need any other copies or you want to share with someone else. Now, 
So anyway, Jesus Christ was, this, you know, this is where we have a problem. The triumphal entry was his offer as king. But you'll notice our first point. Jesus was presented as king, but the people did not respond to that offer. Now, you notice his disciples. Look at, look at Luke chapter 19, verses 37 and 38. Now, it's printed on your notes, but if you want to turn there in your Bible, you can do that. But in Luke chapter 19, verses 37 and 38, it sounds almost as though there's a groundswell around Jesus, but if you read it carefully, it's not a groundswell around Jesus. Luke 19, verse 37 and 38. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, that's coming into the city, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works which they had seen, saying, now notice, blessed be the king, or blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You'll notice it said, blessed is the Savior. No, the king. Here's a good place to point out to people. Jesus offered himself as king. He didn't offer himself as savior to the people. In the plan and program of God, he was going to be rejected. And because he was rejected, the Jews put him on a cross. And that was in God's plan. And God intended that so he could make him a savior. But to the people of Israel, he didn't come in saying, I'm going to die. Would it, would it make sense? Think for a moment. If Jesus had come in and said, I'm, this, I'm come to be your Savior. I'm going to die on the cross for you and save you from your sins. And so the Jews said, oh, he wants to die on the cross to be our Savior. We'll make him our Savior. Would they have done that? According to what I saw in 1 Corinthians 2, if, if the people that run the world system, if they had had any idea what God was going to do, they would not have crucified Christ. Did you know that? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 2. If you haven't seen the verse, you should keep this in mind because... One of the things that you can guarantee that anything that God is trying to do with his church, anything God is doing anywhere on this planet with his people, is going to draw the same kind of a response from unsaved people, from those that have the rule and the authority. At 1 Corinthians 2, and pastor's been here before too, I know, so this should be familiar, I I trust. Beginning at verse 6. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he says, How be it, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect or mature, if you please, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the, nor the princes of this world, which come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God before the world ordained unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There it is. If God is going to do something, or if God is doing something, you can count on it. The, the people that run the world system, these, the princes of this world. Now remember, how do they get to be princes of the world, by the way? Well, we didn't read it, but in Luke 4, you'll find out how they got there. Jesus said this, that Satan rather said to Jesus, I give, it, I give this world system to whoever I want to give it to. Now, who does Satan want to give it to? Oh, he wants to give it to, to Christians, right? He wants to give it to those? No. He wants to give it to those who will do this, who will oppose what God says. So when you see the rich people opposing what God says, you know who they belong to. Nobody has to tell you who they belong to. They don't belong to God. They belong to Satan. I know sometimes Christians like to make believers out of people who are anything but. So, when you look at Luke, on the bottom of page 1, then, when you look at, look at Luke 19... Verses 37 and 38. 
you might be tempted to say, well, look, there's a groundswell of people here. They really have got the message. They see this is the king. They're responding. But you'll notice it says the whole multitude of his disciples. Now, if you didn't have that phrase, of his disciples, then you might be able to say, the people got the message. No, they didn't. It says, the disciples are saying this. The people weren't saying this. Now, look at the top of the next page. The people weren't saying this, and one of the reasons they weren't saying it is because they followed their religious leaders. And as everybody that's been involved in, in the pastor or any kind of teaching ministry knows, is people will tend to follow their leaders. And so if, if the leaders are doing this, where do you think most of the people are going to be? Top of, page, top of page two in our notes. The religious leadership of Israel had actively been trying to get rid of Jesus. Now, before we look at that verse there, there's one I should have put in. And you should, right, in your, right in the margin, John 5.16, because I should have put that in. And I thought of it at the time, and I didn't, and I realized I didn't. So John 5, 16, I want to say a few things about that because this shows you something important. The leadership, we said the leadership had been actively trying to get rid of Jesus. And in John 12, we see what was said, but I want you to see that it started a long time before that. The honest truth of the matter is, I wonder, and Pastor, I'm going to have to pick your brain about this and see, can you tell exactly when they first started rejecting Jesus? Because pastor looks to me like it was almost from the very get-go. But we'll have to talk more about that. Brother Dan, we'll get you in on that too. We'll, we love to get those three of us get together and talk theology. Oh, my goodness. Okay, in Luke chapter, or John chapter 5 and verse 16, this is, a, this is a remarkable event. This is one of the more interesting events in Scripture. The one thing about this event that is so, there's a tragic note to this man being healed. 38 years by the pole. Of Bethesda, waiting for his chance to get in when the water was troubled by an angel. And after 38 years, he gets healed. And notice how much, do you notice where he says, thank you to Jesus? You, well, read down through here, scan down through. Do you see any place where he said thank you to Jesus? He didn't even thank Jesus. Oh, what did he do, though? Well, he went and told, the, he went and told Christ's enemies who it was. He was helping the enemy. You mean he was healed, and he turned around and helped... How's that for gratitude? That's kind of a sad note here, isn't it? The man gets healed after 38 years. You'd think he'd fall down on his face and, and, and lick the ground in front of Christ. He doesn't do anything. Now, maybe he did, but it certainly isn't recorded. So this, of course, stirred up a controversy, and that controversy was around the fact that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Now, folks, the way, this, the, way the, the Jews took the Sabbath, and the Jews, I mean the religious leaders of Israel, John uses... The, the Jews in most of his gospel, that refers to the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, those people that make up the religious leadership. The way they used the law, the commandment is not to labor on the Sabbath, to keep it holy. They went way beyond what the, what the law, they had their own interpretation. The law didn't say you don't do anything on the Sabbath. It says you don't work. You don't do your customary job. If you're a salesman, you're not selling on Saturday. If you're a farmer, you're not out in the fields on Saturday. But it didn't say you couldn't play soccer if they played soccer. It couldn't, you couldn't play, oh, maybe they played golf. You couldn't play golf on something. No, it doesn't say that. It says you don't do your customary work. Now, what the Pharisees have done, the reason they get upset with Jesus is because he did something on the Sabbath. It wasn't work for him at all. He spoke a word. My goodness, if you look at it, one of the remarkable things about this in verse 8 of John 5 that shows you the immense power this one had, and this is deliberate. 
He deliberately did it this way. He could have touched this man because in many cases, Jesus did touch someone when he healed them. But he didn't in this case because this man was not going to be on his side. But there's no way you could deny this was a miracle because this man had been there 38 years. He couldn't do it. He couldn't heal himself. He couldn't get in the water. So it had to be something out of the ordinary there. And secondly, it was done without even laying a hand on him. There's no way you could question that could be a miracle. There's no way you could question that. No one, I've never gone to a doctor and have him say, well, you've got this problem. It's gone. The only thing he say to me, he says, get out your wallet. Open it up. It's gone. <laughs> now, I've seen that happen. Uh, it's the most, by the way, did you know, folks, that the most commonly performed surgery is a walletectomy? They open up the wallet surgically, and whatever's in there, if it has any pictures like of uh, Abraham Lincoln or any, it's gone. A walletectomy. Just be careful. If the doctor says you need a walletectomy, don't take it. <laughs> don't take it. <clears throat> so, but so you see in John 5, verse 8, Jesus said unto him, Rise up, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, in many cases, Jesus laid his hands on people, but why didn't he do it here? Because he's making a point. This man was not going to respond favorably, neither would the Jews when they heard it. So by not laying hands on him, there's no way that they could have said that, well, Jesus pulled a thorn out of his side that pinched a nerve that stopped him from walking. I mean, there's no, there's no foolishness, silliness that could come there. There was no question they would have had to have acknowledged that this was a miracle, or as John says, actually sign. And so he didn't lay hands on him for that reason. And I think that's really important to notice. But now, why, we're, why, why we are here is in verse 16. Now, the issue was that Jesus, quote-unquote, broke the Sabbath. He broke their understanding. He broke the Jewish tradition. He didn't break the fourth commandment. It says, you shall not do any work on the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it whole, so forth. He didn't break that. He just broke their tradition, which says, you don't do anything that looks like work on the Sabbath. Well, this wasn't work anyway, but their interpretation. So they're after him. Now notice what it says. And therefore, verse 16 John 5, and therefore the Jews did persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because, it was, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Now, it says, it says that they, they did persecute him. If you looked at the original, if you look at the original language, it's an imperfect. It means they were persecuting him. It's not that they started at this point. They already were persecuting him. But now they're getting a little more angry because now he's done something on the Sabbath that, that they don't like and they don't want it done the way he does it. They want him to do it on their terms. In fact, there's one case where one of the rulers of the synagogue says when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he said, there's six days a week when work ought to be done. You don't come to the Sabbath, the synagogue, to get it, or the temple and get it done. The people, they really were something else, they're religious leaders. So, what we're saying in John 5.16, if you look at it correctly, literally it says, therefore the, G, did the, Jews, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Therefore, not did the Jews persecute Jesus, but therefore the Jews were persecuting Jesus. They already were, and they continued doing it. So this goes back, and the fifth chapter goes back quite a ways, at least to the midpoint of, his, at least to the midpoint of, of the earthly ministry of Christ. At least for a year and a half, the last year and a half, at least that long. Now, probably longer, but you can see at least that long from this passage. So, now, when you see how bad it is, you look at John twelve nineteen. It's in our notes, but if, if you'd like to turn there, you can, you can turn and look at it. 
And there's a very important word in this verse. And if you, if you use e-sword, you'll appreciate this. If you don't use e-sword, you should. Get it. At the price e-sword is, you can't miss. Free is a very good price. And I'm, I'm so cheap sometimes, if I, 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 I'm willing to take the common cold because it's free. No, not really. But, I mean, free is a good price. And so if you're not using it, oh, you're missing a wonderful tool. You can ask me about it. I can show you how to use it. When I, I'll bring my own computer in and show you how to use it. It's just a wonderful, wonderful tool. You don't have to know Greek and you don't have to know Hebrew, but you can learn a lot of the things about what the words mean in the original language without even knowing the language itself because of this wonderful tool. So, if you look at John 12, 19, this is, this is later in Christ's ministry. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the whole world's gone after him. This was coming in on the last Passover when they're going to, get, they're going to take him and finally get their hands on him. But it says, See how ye prevail nothing? Now you'll notice under point number A, prevail. And there, there's your number for Esword, G5623. If you look that word up and you see how it's used, it, it, it uses, my definition is a little different from the lexicon, so I put it in here, to achieve something, to gain an advantage, or be, to be benefited by something. That's my definition. And you can see that that's what it means, achieving something. In Luke 9.25, it's printed in your notes, but you can look at it if you want to. For what is a man advantaged, G56.23, if, if he gains the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? What has a man achieved? Does that make more sense to say that? What has a man achieved if he gets the whole world and he loses his own life? What has he achieved? Nothing. That's what it means. You can see it there. So what, what we're saying, you'll notice point number B. If we were to say, see how we've achieved nothing? It means that we've been trying to get something done, but we failed to do it. So it tells you that they had been doing, they had been opposing him, and it says they had been trying to prevail, trying to achieve something along the way, and they couldn't do it. Now, when you get to John 6, 7, and 8, you'll see some of the harassment. They were trying to do something to upset the apple cart, as it were, but they couldn't do it. It didn't work, so they couldn't achieve anything. Now, these corrupt leaders did not even pretend to accept Jesus as their king. Now, you might think that because the people listened to Jesus, and, the, and these religious leaders, they knew the people were listening to him. They knew the people liked him. That's one of the problems they had about taking him, because they knew that if they took him, they could cause an uproar among the people. And they didn't want to do that, because they wanted to keep their positions as these perfect religious leaders. And besides, it wouldn't look nice. It would look nasty. And they didn't want to look nasty. Heaven forbid. So, they pretended that they, they pretended that they liked him, they tolerated him, but they really didn't pretend that they accepted him as king. You know, you'll notice, you see there's contempt there. I printed in your notes, Luke 19, verses 39 and 47, two verses there, you can see them. Uh, and it says, And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke your disciples. Now, what were the disciples doing? They were saying, well, we read it. Blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what did, the, what did the Jews say? Master, rebuke him. Tell him to shut up. Why? Because they didn't want Christ as king, and they didn't want the people to hear about it either. They didn't pretend. There's no pretense here that these would receive. Oh, they, they might have been civil to him in public at times, although when you, when you read John 6, 7, and 8, you'll see the civility wore off pretty quickly. 
They may have pretended to be nice in some cases, but behind the scenes, they didn't want any part of him. He said, tell your disciples to shut up. You mean he couldn't say he was coming as king? They did not, not, not according to them. They didn't want it. They made no, there's no bones about it. And then look at verse 47. And it, it here tells you exactly what we've been saying. Luke 19, 47. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people. So you've got the chief priests, the scribes, which were the people that taught the law. The chief of the people, civil rulers, sought to destroy him. So it says the Pharisees never quit opposing Jesus, but I guess we could say all the leaders never ceased opposing Jesus because look at you've got the chief priests. They were the top echelon of the Jewish rule of Jewish religious observation. They set the stage. You had the scribes, the ones that taught the law. And you had this, the, the, the leaders of the people, those that were governmentally involved with Rome. So all every area of the Jewish society was down on him and they all wanted to destroy him. So there, there was never any question about it. So perhaps uh, that might be why as he approached the city. Now Jesus knew these things. And as he approached the city, we find out in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. And let's go there and read it. We're going to find out that Jesus weeps over the city. Now, you might wonder why, but when you, when you read what's said here and consider it in light of the other things we know that are going... And Jesus knows the hearts of people. We know in John 2 it says Jesus knew all things. He knew what was in man. He knew what they were thinking. And that goes into it. So, as Jesus is coming in, you'll notice in verse 39 of Luke 19, we already saw that, this, this, that some of the Pharisees said... Uh, from among them all two said, Master, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. And so what Jesus said was rather interesting. He answered and said unto them, verse 40, I tell you that if, the, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Interesting, isn't it? In other words, the word was going to get out and they weren't going to be able to stop it. And so then verse 41, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. Now why is he weeping over it? Because they didn't receive him, because he knew what was going to happen, because he knew that the leaders would not have anything to do with him. And without getting the leadership behind him, he wasn't going to have a chance. He wasn't going to be king. The people weren't going to be able to overrule their own leaders, much less the Roman government. So it says, it says saying, if you had known, even thou, at the least in this thy day, in this in thy day, this is your day, this is your chance the things which belong unto your peace, but now they're hid from your eyes. Now notice what he says, for, or I like to say because, because the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench around thee and shall compass thee around and, and keep thee in on every side, and they shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because you knew not the time of thy visitation." Pretty straightforward. Jesus weeps. Why? Because the people aren't going to get a chance. The leaders will never accept him. And because of that, the people are going to follow their leaders. And ultimately, the people are going to say, remember, it's the people in John says crucify him. They're stirred up to do it by the chief priests. But the people went along with their leaders, didn't they? And so here we go. They're going to bring upon themselves utter, complete destruction. And so as he weeps... You can see that. Now, it's interesting to note that Matthew doesn't, doesn't record that in, in his account of the, uh, 
triumphal entry. He does have Jesus weeping later, but it's not the same event. So it's interesting that you don't have Matthew's account doing it. But Luke's, Luke's account, you'll notice now point number B, and we're going to have to stop here just in a minute. So we're going to have to come back next week, and, or not, not next week, and next month. You'll have to wait for a month to hear it. Uh, you can see that this is going to feed right into the Christ's words in the temple. Let's take a moment and look at Matthew chapter 24, because Jesus is going to say something here in particular. Now, he said the city is going to be leveled. Now, obviously, the temple was in the city limits. So if the city's level, wouldn't that mean the temple? Yeah, it would mean the temple. But he's going to say something else, and this is going to, this is going to cause the disciples to ask a question. And when we look at what the questions they asked were and look at how it's used, you'll see what Matthew 24 is about. It has absolutely, utterly, completely, and thoroughly not one thing to do with the church. Right? Get that? Not one thing to do with the church. Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus went out. And he weeps. Or he's in, now you have Matthew 24, you have him weeping. But this is at a different time. We'll have to look at this later. But we want to just look at the first two verses of, of uh, Matthew 24. Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, you might not know it, but Herod was known as the builder. He was known as a great builder. He built all kinds of things. He was really well liked for the, by the people, despite his cruelty, because he built so many things. And he spent 46 years building the temple. And I think it was still, there were still parts of it in construction at the time of Christ. It wasn't completely done, I don't believe, at that point. But we know it was 46 years from John's Gospel that he was, that, and that was Herod that did that. So Herod had an interesting side. He was just downright rotten. But he, would, he knew how to placate the people. Just build stuff. Does good for the economy too. But so they, the disciples wanted to show him the buildings of the temple. Now Jesus said unto, them, said unto them, See you not all these things? Verily, or amen, I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, what led up to this? The fact the city's going to be leveled, so the disciples come to him, and they want to show him the buildings of the temple. And in the back of their mind, they had to remember what Jesus had already said. So Jesus said to them something. I believe he didn't say this just out of a vacuum. He knew what these people were bothering his disciples. He knew. And he addressed it right up front. Now, we're going to have to stop here, but I want, I want to show you something. If we don't get a chance to do it and the Lord returns, you'll probably not be worried about the answer. But if he doesn't return, you can see... What, what was going on here? Look at verse 3. Here's what this chapter is about. We'll come back and look at this in some detail in a month. But you'll notice what it says. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, not publicly, privately, and said, Tell us, number one, when shall these things be? Number two, what is the sign of your coming? And number three, you see the end of the world, it's the end of the age, and really it's, it's what we call an elliptical statement. What's the sign of your coming and what's the sign of the end of the age? They're asking three distinct questions. Who are these questions for? Who, what are they about? Oh, they're about the church, are they? You better read this chapter and the next one is tell me how many times you see the word church or pastor. Tell me how many times you see it. You won't see it. Let me give you just a little taste of something here. 
Look at verse 15. I'm skipping ahead, and I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not ruining it because we're going to come back and look at this uh, the, you know, next month. We will see this again. But look at verse 15. If you wanted to use a single verse, there are two places you could go to get a single verse that would completely refute the idea that there are signs preceding the rapture found in Matthew 24. You can do it with just two different verses. This one's right out of Matthew 24 itself. Look what it says in verse 15. When, when you therefore shall see, you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, let him that reads understands. When you see it. Now when is that event going to happen? You can write in the margin of your Bible, Daniel chapter 9, about verse 27. Because it tells you that the beast that's going to come is going to sign a covenant with the people of Israel for seven years and it's going to give them back the temple. They're going to get the temple back. Did you know that today they think they know exactly where it is, but they won't say it because of the, the Muslims? But they claim they know where it is and they actually have, over the years, if what I've read and been told is correct, they've gathered up all kinds of materials and all they're doing is waiting for the right time to build it. But they can't do it. Uh, but when the man of lawlessness comes along, he's going to solve the Middle East problem. So much so that they're going to build their own temple. But in the middle of the week, it tells us he's going to stop it and he's going to stride out on the temple and say, I am God. You don't need to worship anything. Here's God right here. And so that's in the Now, if that is true, and it is, how can an event in the middle of the tribulation be, have anything to do with the signs that tribulation is coming? That would be like my saying, predicting, after Dan gets a ticket for speeding in his Corvette, <laughs> Dan, you're going to get, Dan, you better slow down, you're going to get a ticket. Uh, gee whiz, he's already got it. How can I, how can I say I, I can foresee that's going to happen to you when it's already happened? If, you, can't, you can't go here. If this is about what goes on in the middle of the tribulation at this point, then how can something in the middle of the tribulation be a sign that tribulation is coming? By the time you get here, you don't need anybody to tell you it's coming. You're already there. My goodness. If people would just read the Bible literally, do you realize how much grief they would save? There is no signs here. So if you see signs anyplace about the coming of the rapture, go out and buy yourself a parakeet because you can use the pages of that to put in there for the paper. That's how much that stuff is worth. It's not true. Are there signs preceding the rapture? We're going to talk about that next month. No, there aren't. And I can show you definitively from Scripture that you can't have any. Now, you've all, I've already spilled the beans on one of them, but we'll come back and look at this again. If this is the middle of the tribulation, how, pray tell, could it be telling the tribulation is coming if it's in the middle of it? It's like, you know, while someone's being run over by the train, you say, the train's coming! You're already being run over. The train's coming! The guy that's getting run over probably got the message before you said a word. We trust this morning, though, that, that uh, we've stirred your thinking a little bit about the triumphal entry because uh, having not planned to do it, nonetheless, it turns out that We've shown you that if you take Scripture literally, you're not going to misunderstand what the triumphal entry was about. It was about the offer of a king. And he was there to be their king. And they would have no part of it. No part of it at all. So, are there signs preceding the rapture? Nope, we'll get more into that next week. There aren't any. And I hope that if you hear anybody trying to tell you that, that it goes in one ear and out the other. Because they're not telling you the truth. And if you want to do something to shake them up and they go to Matthew 24, set them down and make them read Matthew 24, 15 and say, what does that mean? 
and then say, now, how does something that happens in the middle of the tribulation tell you the tribulation's coming? By the time you get to that point, you already kind of know it's coming, don't you? It's amazing the problems people create when they just don't let Scripture say what it says. Ah, I would never buy a, I would never buy a car or sign a rental agreement or contract with someone that didn't take things literally. <laughs> I could just see my landlady saying, "Well, I said this much is your rent a month, but I really meant this much." You wouldn't put up with that, would you? Why would we let people do that to our Bible? Why? Don't let them do it to you. Don't believe them. Let's pray, shall we? Father, once again, we're thankful that we have your word, that it tells us everything that we need to know. It makes things clear. And Father, we are so much better off if we just simply let the Bible say what it says and not try to put some spin on it because we have a preconception. It can't mean that because if it means that, then my theology is wrong. Father, help us to always be those that are willing to change what we believe to match the Bible, not those who try to t twist the Bible to fit what we believe in advance. We're not students, Father, of your word. We're not good believers if we try to make you say what we want you to say. Your word says what we need to believe, and that's where the story ends. We need to take it for what it says. May we always be those who do so, we ask now in our Savior's name. Amen. So next month we will come back onto page two, and we will continue our study.